Another pot of coffee is brewing. My third cup is almost finished. Yes, the health kick is still sort of on track. So that means it's time for another episode of Not Before Coffee. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, TV show marathoner, film addict, hermit, long-term depression sufferer, and very honest caffeine. Welcome to the tropics. Yes, this week I am traveling somewhere exotic. Warm sunshine, turquoise waters, and white sand. Sounds like paradise, right? As I mentioned last week, June was originally going to be nothing but Lucifer, but it didn't feel right because going back to the beginning, when I had already looked at what is almost the end, would be going backwards. So instead, I started my journey around shows that I have enjoyed. Are British? Well, mostly next week I throw that one up in the air and I could easily talk about them until the cows come home. The show I'm talking about this week isn't anywhere near as limited as Spaced or Black Books, but I still hold a fond place for it in my heart. It's not even a comedy, though there are some humorous moments to be fair. I checked on various platforms that I have access to and though the entire run is available on BBC iPlayer, As I don't have a TV licence, I cannot watch it. A large proportion of it is also available on Netflix. So last weekend, I settled back to watch the first season and loved every minute of it as much as I did the first time I watched it. So what exactly am I going to be talking about this week? Well, before I get into it, I'll give you three clues and see if you can guess. Clue one. A lot of it is based on or near a beach. Clue two, Harry the Anoli. And clue three, inappropriate suits. Get your mind out of the gutter. I don't mean inappropriate in that way. Maybe those clues are far more for fans than casual watchers. So I'm going to put you out of your misery. This week, I am going to be talking about a British procedural that takes you away from the mortuary, doesn't go anywhere near the city, and where it very rarely rains. Yes, I know that two episodes did take place in London. This week, get your passport ready as I take you to the fictional Caribbean island of St. Marie. Yes, I am going to be talking about Death in Paradise. I am aware that though this show is incredibly popular in the UK and it airs in 236, no, you did not hear that incorrectly, 236 other territories, including the US where it airs on PBS, France and even Russia, many people will look at the title and think, is this an adaptation of something by Agatha Christie? Well, no, it's not. On the island of St. Marie, it can be murder if you have a secret to hide or just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that's where Richard Poole comes in, albeit incredibly reluctantly. Richard Poole may seem like a sensible detective, but wearing suits in 100 degree weather is anything but. However, he is determined to stick to the rules of his job. In London, rather than where he has been reluctantly sent to solve the murder of another British detective who had been working on St. Marie at the Honoré police station for several years. He didn't realise that by stepping off the plane and into the sticky heat, he would be sealing his fate. 
that he would end up staying on St. Marie and working with a team of incredibly different officers who live by very different rules. The show aired for the first time in November 2011, so has now been running for 10 seasons. Though the first one premiered in October of that year, subsequent seasons aired their eight-episode run from January to February, starting in 2013. Clearly, the schedulers at the BBC, despite preferring repeat upon repeat, seriously, why so many repeats, for the majority of the time, realised that the beauty of a warm, sunny island was going to appeal to its audience in the coldest months of the year. And the fact that Death in Paradise is the channel's third most popular drama and has recently been renewed for a further two seasons, so I have at least another 16 episodes on St. Marie to enjoy, says a lot. I have mentioned several times in several episodes that I love procedurals. Okay, so the majority are American, Castle, NCIS, Criminal Minds, Bones, The Closer. The list is pretty long. And to me, they all have something in common with Death in Paradise, in that they don't take themselves too seriously. Sure, sometimes they can be a little bit darker. For example, the episodes where Spencer is taken hostage by Dawson. Okay, I mean James Van Der Beek, but to be fair, that's what everyone knows him as. And he was drugged. And the subject of murder isn't exactly light-hearted, but it's the cast that makes the show what it is. There are lighter moments where the characters are having fun together, sarcastic comments and jokes. They are looking at the less pleasant side of humanity and can still enjoy themselves. And I think this is important. It's an important lesson for everyone, to be honest. Death in Paradise is like that. Exactly like that. As the title would suggest, every single week we get a murder and every single week it's solved by the very small police team from Honoré Police Station. Ben Miller, who plays D.I. Richard Poole, actually started his career in comedy before going on to feature in films like Johnny English and The Prince and Me. And he can now be seen in the Netflix series Bridgerton. Here, little author note, I will not be reviewing that one, as I didn't enjoy the books enough to want to see them translated onto the screen. Anyway, Richard Poole is a by-the-book man. He is reluctantly convinced to solve the murder of D.I. Charlie Holm, who has been working on the island for several years. It's a locked room case, and it seems that Richard's boss believes him to be perfect to actually go out to the island and solve it. Apparently, they also held a party when he left, after he'd gone, which says a lot about what his colleagues felt about him, really. When he arrives on the island, he is annoyed by the weather. His suitcase hasn't even left the UK. And despite expecting to be put up in a hotel, finds that the accommodation they have given him is actually a beach shack. Being honest, that beach shack looks amazing. <laughs> right on the sand, palm trees, a view of the water. Though I'm guessing the Wi-Fi might be a little bit spotty. <laughs> it would be the ideal place to just sit down with a nice cocktail and a pile of amazing books and relax. The officers he's working with on the case are as different as chalk and cheese. There is Dwayne, played by Danny John Jules. Yes, the cat from Red Dwarf, though many of you will probably know him better as a sad from Blade 2. And I appeared on an episode with Josh from Four Nerds by Nerds actually discussing Blade 2 a few weeks ago. He is so laid back a lot of the time that he could be horizontal, or believed to be at least. He knows the job really well as he's been working at the station for years. He's relaxed, 
but he gets the job done. He knows his limits and, unlike some, he is able to switch off at the end of the day. There is also Fidel, played by Gary Carr. This was actually his first big TV role. However, he has moved onwards and upwards since leaving. And in 2019, he starred alongside Chadwick Boseman in 21 Bridges, which is available on Amazon, just so you know. Fidel is recently married and about to become a father. He takes his role a lot more seriously than Dwayne and is much quicker to accept that Richard Paul is new DI. He is incredibly observant and works until he gets the job done, as is proved several times and especially very early on when he spends an entire night manually checking fingerprints against those found on a murder weapon. In the first episode, we are also introduced to Camille Bourdet. I'm saying that with a French accent because so does she, though at first it's believed she is a prime suspect in the murder of Charlie Holm. By the end of the episode, we are made aware that she has been working undercover to get to the bottom of a people smuggling ring that's been operating out of the island. When she is arrested during the investigation, her cover is blown and she ends up joining the team on St. Marie, though she's not exactly happy about it either, especially knowing she has got to report to Richard, who arrested her. Not the best start to a working relationship. Camille is played by the French-Portuguese actress Sarah Martins, and most of her career is in French TV and film, though this year, 2021, she did make a brief reappearance in Death in Paradise. As we get to know Camille, we discover that while she is incredibly good at her job, she is also very competitive. She's a sharpshooter, athletic, very close to her mother Catherine, and will follow the rules when they benefit her. The relationship she has with Richard is to begin with at least, antagonistic as she doesn't feel that he is better than her, which to be fair, he's not. She's totally badass. She's efficient and driven, but that doesn't mean that she lets the job consume her. She is the one person in the department who tries the hardest to get Richard to let go of a little of his British stiffness and live a little. Despite finding him frustrating, she also finds him endearing and seemingly can understand his irritation at being somewhere he doesn't want to be, even though it makes little sense why he doesn't want to be there. Seriously? A transfer to a tropical island? Yes, please. I know I've got very fair skin and I'd burn to buggery in about a day, actually less than a day, probably about an hour. But, oh my God, the sea, the sand, the smell. Yes, please. There are several other characters in the show that add to its charm, including Selwyn Patterson, the police commissioner. He's very rarely seen not wearing his uniform, and despite the fact that he is an island man through and through, he is also every inch the politician. He can be incredibly relaxed in the right circumstances, but his general demeanour encourages respect, and he can sometimes come across as incredibly intimidating purely because of the way he approaches everyone, and I mean everyone. For the most part, he lets his trusted officers do what they must in order to solve a crime. Despite being in a role that demands respect, he knows what it's like to be someone based in the police station, and I think that this is why he is able to occasionally switch off his need to always make people in power happy. That doesn't mean that he lets Richard, Camille, Fidel and Dwayne run roughshod, but it does mean that he trusts when their intentions are the best. 
As the police commissioner, he has to be friendly and cooperative when it comes to the wealthier and more influential people on the island. And this is very clear when he's talking to certain people who the team are investigating. Selwyn is the one who has to smooth over things when his police officers upset someone who has enough money to complain to people higher up than he is. That's not to say that he doesn't like and enjoy the benefits of his role. It's more that he is often the one who has to create the boundaries and enforce them, even when he would rather he didn't have to. Though he is most often seen in his official uniform as the commissioner, on occasion he has been known to wear much more casual clothing, including brightly coloured shirts and sand-coloured shorts. I know that much is made of the fact that Richard Paul is constantly wearing his suits and seem to be sweating profusely because he is a not accustomed to the heat and b heavy dark suits are most certainly not appropriate for the sort of heat you find in the Caribbean so why am I not saying how can Selwyn be comfortable in his official uniform which is a suit with long sleeves medals and a lot of other accessories well, one, Selwyn is a native of the island and the constant heat is something he is accustomed to. And two, his suit is not made of a dark, heavy material. I'm assuming here, but I think Richard's are probably wool of some kind. Definitely not appropriate for this heat. Anyway, the suit isn't who Selwyn is. It just indicates his position of authority. Selwyn Patterson is played by Don Warrington, who has been an actor for decades and has been in everything from rising damp in the 70s to playing King Lear on the national stage. He's a larger-than-life character and the sort that I want the rest of the station to like rather than fight against. I think that he's always the one who offers a little bit of sense when the rest of the team go just a little bit too far. Another regular character in the show is Camille's mother, Catherine Bourdais. In the early seasons of the show, she runs a bar where the town of Honoré gather for drinks, dancing and fun on a regular basis. Seriously, it's always packed. She's also the only person who can make Richard the perfect cup of tea. Though we are made aware very early on that Camille grew up on the island and her mother still lives on St. Marie, we don't actually meet Catherine until the second episode. She is someone who people can confide in and as the owner of a bar she's also a great source of information as well as being an amazing student of human nature as many people who work in bars tend to be. As the series goes on Catherine actually becomes even more important and influential especially after she becomes the mayor of Honoré at the very end of season six following another murder. Catherine is played by Elizabeth Bourgine like Don Warrington, she has been acting since the 70s, though, like Sarah Winters, the majority of her roles have been in France. Just to note, right there, I meant to say Sarah Martin, not Sarah Winters. Author mistake. She's an entrancing actress who you can tell was a dancer in her youth because of the fluidity of her movement. She is incredibly graceful and elegant and is a perfect fit for this particular role. There are a lot more characters that I could talk about here because, as with many shows, the lead characters go through changes, with the first big ones happening at the beginning of season three. However, right now I am focusing on talking about Richard, Camille, Fidel and Dwayne. I'll save the character changes for another day because it's definitely going to be another episode. 
Throughout the first eight episodes, it's obvious that the team are learning about each other, getting the hang of the little quirks and unusual habits that make them who they are. Richard is meticulous, and though he does expect everyone to take their job seriously, he doesn't begrudge them for having fun, he just prefers not to join in. In a nod to a very British cliché, Richard doesn't want to eat while on the island. He's nervous about the unfamiliar food, and all he wants is what he would have back home, namely a roast dinner. He's clearly not a big drinker, if his reaction to Catherine's cocktails is anything to go by, and he searches far and wide for a proper cup of tea. I have to be honest, I've been there. When I lived in Australia in my teens, all I wanted was a good cup of tea and a bowl of apple crumble with custard. This was long before the days of Amazon, so I couldn't order anything online. And all I wanted was a packet of PG tips and a tub of bird's custard. But my nan, bless her heart, oh my gosh, she sent me a care package after I'd been in the country for probably three months. She promised that she'd sent the custard, but it turned out that it had been confiscated by customs because she decanted the entire tub into a resealable plastic bag. Yeah, that didn't look suspicious at all, did it, Nan? Richard's been all over the island for his tea and in his own implacable way has managed to offend every single person that served him. He's very blunt when it comes to delivering his opinions, whether good or bad. And when the tea doesn't meet his expectations, he isn't exactly nice about it. But that's just the way he's portrayed, to the point, honest and perfunctory. The funny thing is, when he finally is encouraged by Camille to go and try tea at her mother's bar, well, what does she know? She's French. Though Richard is reluctant to be on the island in the first place, he doesn't quite realise how far from the UK it is until he talks about the credit crunch of 2008, and it's obvious that it's something that didn't affect the island to the same degree. Dwayne nods his head and says something along the lines of, oh yes, the credit crunch, but he has this look on his face that clearly says, what on earth is that? The island is as it's always been, and though the credit crunch may have affected aspects of imports and things, it clearly didn't have the same effects on the islanders as it did on countries that were so financially focused. Richard is very by the book, which leads to a great number of misunderstandings. But that being said, he is also willing to make things work when equipment isn't available and things take more time than he is used to. There are several examples of this through the first season, including when he uses a basic chemistry kit in a classroom to detect cyanide and then creates a way to find fingerprints on the inside of a single glove using glue, a light bulb and a fish tank. Whatever else Richard Paul may be, he is definitely not short on ingenuity when it's necessary. It takes time, but Richard is slowly adjusting though that doesn't mean he has lost all hope of returning to the cooler weather of London. Even after the arrival of his suitcase, he is still not about letting his hair down. The one thing that I really love about this is that he doesn't suddenly one day change his style and start to wear short-sleeved shirts. Wow, try and say that five times fast. And casual trousers. From the day he starts, he has chosen his style and sticks with it. He's consistent. Many comments are made on his suits and the fact that they are not at all appropriate for the Caribbean heat. And though he is overheated constantly, he is often seen holding a very chilled bottle of water to the back of his neck rather than changing his style of dress. 
I can't help but love the fact that they don't have him instantly acclimatising because it really doesn't happen like that, as anyone who has moved from one country to another will be able to tell you. It takes a while for the team to adjust to the more rule-following aspects of Richard's personality, though at one point they do mention, do you remember when D.I. Holm arrived? He wasn't any less official when he first got to the island. In fact, none of them is happy when Richard steps in to take over the role of running the office. However, once he's proved himself and does show some effort in trying to fit in, they start to warm to him, though they do still find many of his incredibly British mannerisms to be funny. Unsurprising, because they are. That they have warmed to him and realise that they are lucky to have him is never more apparent than when Richard contracts a fever and a temporary replacement who was on holiday on the island is called in. D.I. Angela Young barks orders and expects things to work exactly as they do in London. So when they are unable to get any sense out of her and they feel that the investigation is not going the way it should, both Fidel and Dwayne go behind the DS's back to get Richard's help. Rather appropriately, the episode is called An Unhelpful Aid. There's even a moment that highlights the way that they both observe Richard's crime-solving methods when they're forced to investigate this murder on their own. Well, what does Sir do? First, he'll pace up and down and complain about the heat. Yes, this show is formulaic. Yes, the murderer is more often than not predictable. But every single thing about the show is fun and the fact that it's scheduled during what happens to be the dullest, most miserable time of year in the UK, namely what feels like a never-ending winter, makes it even more so. Over the years, there have been many articles that cover the makeup of the cast, accusing the writers and producers of racism as the man in charge, the big man on campus, is always white. But at the same time, the fact that whoever is in charge is white is the premise of the show – He's the fish out of water, the one who is trying to adjust to a culture that he is completely unfamiliar with, which puts him at a huge disadvantage. And many jokes about his behaviour and attitudes are made by his colleagues. In many ways, whoever is the DI at that moment is just full of classical British cliches. All of that being said, in 2015, the production company behind Death in Paradise was actually presented with a Diversity in Drama Production Award. So they're doing something right. The critics aren't hugely keen on this programme. Shocker. With some referring to it as formulaic. Hey, I've already said it myself, but that's its charm. It's not all murder sensationalism and jump scares. It's gentle humour and an off-screen murder in a beautiful setting. Every single time I'm in need of something that's calming and I don't need to think about too much. This is one of those programmes that is on my list. So there you have it, Death in Paradise. Netflix, France 2, Britbox, PBS, BBC iPlayer. Depending on the country where your hat is currently hanging, they are the places you should be able to find it. Just in case you haven't checked the podcatcher since last week, a little note, a brand new episode of The Bookshop, all about Alexandra Bracken's recent novel Law, is now available for download. So, we've come to the question and the answer portion of this episode. Let me know if there are any questions you would like to hear me ask and answer about the shows that I watch, 
or if there's a show you'd love to hear me cover, but nothing really gory. So, here goes. Did I enjoy it? Yes, it's one of the only reasons I actually kept my TV license for all those years. Now I either wait until it's been added to Netflix, or I head to a friend so I can catch up with it on their TV. I've probably mentioned this before, but I honestly don't think that one eight-week show is worth paying for a TV license that costs more than I pay for a full year of Disney, Amazon Prime, or Netflix. Though sometimes I do question whether Netflix is worth it anymore, I have to be honest. The gentle humour, the relationships between the characters that develop naturally rather than being forced, and of course, the murder of the week, all go towards making Death in Paradise one of those shows that you can watch without getting angry, which is rare these days. Ideal viewing when the nights are long, dark and chilly. Would I watch more? Yes. Despite my intention to just watch one season last week and start writing this episode, I have ended up watching the whole of season two and no doubt this evening I will be revisiting season three which brings with it as I have mentioned already a lot of cast changes how would I recommend this to someone who's never seen it do you know what I honestly never gave this much thought one of the things that I honestly believe has made this a show that continues to grab my attention and be so entertaining is the fact that there are regular character updates. Sure, I grew attached to Ben Miller as Richard Poole, and I have been sad with every single change that's occurred, but these cast updates bring with them the potential for a new perspective, new quirks, new relationship dynamics, new cases, keeping it fresh and definitely keeping it entertaining. So, there it is, my completely spoiler-free review of the first sunny season of Death in Paradise with a few hints at things to come. I will talk about other seasons later on, but I will say that though season one was actually the lowest rated of the 10 seasons there have been so far, it is one of my favourites because I still remember the cases even after I haven't watched it for a while. So, how are things in the coffee household this week? Well, to be honest, this week was a bit of a weird one. Moments that made me genuinely laugh and moments that had me clicking my mouth closed abruptly. At one point, I almost bit through my tongue as I struggled to keep my thoughts in my head because I just couldn't believe that someone had the sheer gall to say what they did. I know that we've probably all been there in a moment where you're having a perfectly innocent conversation and then the topic turns to something a little more serious and something is said that has you pausing and wondering if perhaps you misheard them, right? Every single weekend, I have a call with my mum. I've probably mentioned this before. Sometimes it lasts for hours, and other times it's a very quick 15 to 20 minute catch up, during which time I barely say anything as I'm given an update on my sister and her family, and my brother and his partner. And then that's it, done for another week. This weekend was a bit of a mix, during which time I had to fight to keep my mouth closed because I knew that if I said anything, I would be bombarded with why did you say that calls from my siblings, who in a normal year I will hear from incredibly rarely. Okay, so I could probably make more effort to get in touch, but I don't. So there's fault definitely on both sides when it comes to that. 
I have to be honest here, I have never been one that chooses to spend much time in their company. My sister, as much as I love her, seems to think that having had children makes her much more knowledgeable than me when it comes to life. And my brother is always so busy. His job has him travelling all over the country and I don't like to impose. I would like to say that we were close as kids, but we just weren't. I was the bookish nerdy one who preferred their own company. Shocker. I have changed so much. The older I've got, the more I have realised that many of these traits are actually very closely tied to my mental health. The need for silence, no distractions, both of which contribute to a reduction in stress and noise in my head. Okay, here's a question for you. Does anyone else get a buzzing noise in their heads when they're about to have a low? I have noticed more and more over the years that the biggest, clearest sign that I'm about to overload, and I don't mean a temper tantrum, is that I start hearing a faint TV static-like buzz in my head that just won't go away. I've found many coping mechanisms that will help when I hit the low points. Meditation, quiet time, slowly drinking a cup of tea. Yes, I say this as a regular coffee drinker. Reading a book that has always comforted me, nothing new, as that way lies danger, because I don't know what I'm going to encounter on the pages of a new book. However, they still happen. I know that I should be used to them by now. It's been 36 years of low points and suicidal thoughts, self-hate and lots of it. But sometimes I have a moment of self-pity and there is nothing wrong with that as long as I get back up and move on once the moment is over. Okay, so after that brief meander, let's get back to the whole Saturday call thing that annoyed me. First off, it was actually Sunday that we had this call. For the first time in a long while, my mum didn't go to my sister's on Sunday as she'd injured herself doing some gardening work. I should probably here give some backstory to this whole thing, because otherwise it's not going to make any sense. So, all the way back in the early 2000s, I was living with my maternal grandmother. Early in 2007, she was diagnosed with lung cancer. She was 77 going on 78. And less than a month later, I was made redundant for the first time. To be honest, this was actually pretty good timing as far as the rest of my family was concerned because it meant that I could take the brunt when it came to caring for a woman who grew increasingly petulant and could often be quite spiteful as the disease took hold. The hospital offered very little apart from palliative care and I think that my nan was actually all right with that though she never said anything. She had one painful radiotherapy session on her back and after that, it was just medication, hospital visits and home care. Though at the start, I wasn't working and it took me a little while to actually get a new job. It was stressful, emotionally draining, and I experienced a lot of verbal abuse from my nan and her children. At this point, this did not include my mother, I will stress, but it did include her two older sisters who I still now I'm so angry at them still. I still refer to them as bitch one and bitch two. They made my life a never-ending hell. They accused me of taking advantage of an elderly woman because I was living with her. And when I asked for brief respite to go to job interviews or have a break, they were awful. All of this, plus the fact that friends were dropping like flies as they realised that I was no longer able to go out and party on a whim anymore... Nor was I that interested in how amazing their lives were because mine was currently turning into so much shit made the whole period a really lonely one. 
okay, so people were coming in and out of the house at all times of the day, but I was being treated like the help. I would prepare meals, bathe my nan, which felt like a really strange change in balance where our relationship was concerned, tidied the house, got her in and out of bed, and then I would study as I was in my third year of the Open University taking my English degree. In early 2008, my nan took a sharp decline. I had recently started working at a large publishing house, redundancy number two wasn't that far off, and my aunt from Canada arrived. With her arrival came even more condemnation. I was treated like a parasite, talked down to, yelled at, constantly verbally abused, only now it was in person rather than over the phone. I was already at a mental low point, exhausted both physically and mentally. My body was in grief mode because there was no denying that my nan was dying. She had started to look like a shadow of her former self and it felt so quick. Though now I look back at it, it wasn't as quick as it felt at the time. And then my nan was sent into a hospice. The end was nigh. On a sunny day at the end of May 2008, she passed away. She was actually the first dead body I have ever seen, and I don't plan on repeating that anytime soon. However, what happened two days later cemented my belief that my family was using me and that I was the brunt of all the bullying. For on the bank holiday Monday following her death, I came home from doing a grocery shop to a letter posted through the front door from my mum, yes, my mum, and her two sisters, informing me that I was being evicted from the house I'd lived in for 13 years. Things went decidedly downhill from that point. I would come home from work to find bitchy notes taped to the top of boxes with things like, don't steal this, it's not yours on them, and I'm taking this. And then the notification came that the electricity was going to be turned off. The phone and Wi-Fi had been switched off less than a week after my grandmother passed away which meant that I was staying at work until gone eight every evening in order to finish university assignments. My aunts accused me of theft and of lying. It was generally a bloody awful moment in my life. They had no concern for my feelings or anything else. As far as they were concerned, they had every right to treat me like a parasitic shit who was in their way. So what, you're going to say, does that have to do with the call I had with my mum? Well, she started to tell me about a work colleague of hers who had forcibly evicted her elderly grandfather from her mother's home while her mother was in hospital. According to my mum, this is not the way that you treat family. My mother said this. The woman who forcibly evicted me from my home was telling me that no one should treat family in exactly the way she treated me. I guess, in the long run, the whole reason behind this story is that sometimes you have to be the bigger person. Sometimes you have to suck in that painful breath and forgive. Probably not forget. I don't think I ever will. Or it will fester. It will grow legs and crawl out from beneath the metaphorical fridge when you're least expecting it. In that moment, during that phone call, I took my few painful moments of disbelief and used them to release the anger in a positive way. Okay, so I am still disappointed and it still hurts dreadfully when I remember how a time that was already so painful was made more so by the person who should have protected me that she didn't say, hang on, let's give her a few months to process everything, to finish her uni year and find somewhere to live is something that I still find incredible. But at the end of it all, I want to believe that she knows she was wrong, 
that some of the things she's done in the last few years have been her own way of making it up to me, even if she refuses to acknowledge that it happened in the first place. Once, about two years after it happened, I did ask her about it, only to get this response. I did it for your own good. You were in your 30s and you wouldn't have been homeless. Social services would have looked after you. Hang on. Social services isn't... You're my family. In fact, social services, when I spoke with the council, they actually told me to sue my mum. And then I remembered that until the age of 36, my brother lived at home. Anyway... The scariest and, for me, the saddest thing that is, despite my mum being fully aware of the fact that only a few years before I'd had a breakdown and been on the verge of suicide, not once did anyone feel any concern for my mental well-being. Instead, I was an inconvenience to be dealt with. Long story short, don't ever let people walk all over you, whoever they are. You have a right to be heard and a right to be protective of your own well-being. Never apologise for being the person you are, as long as you're not hurting others, of course. Just because I have a mental illness does not give anyone the right to treat me as though I don't matter, or as though I'm unimportant. Before I go, I do have one thing to say. Voting is now open for the British Podcast Awards, and there are some incredible podcasts up for an award. If you haven't done so yet, head over to the website. I will post the link in the info box below. You can even vote for me if you want to. Just don't forget that all-important exclamation mark at the end of Not Before Coffee. So that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the listen and I will be back next week with more. Don't forget, the bookshop will be open again on Monday with the next review. If you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends and family and post a review or like my podcast over on Podchaser. I really love hearing from you. You can follow me on Twitter at need underscore three underscore mugs or over on Instagram at not before coffee podcast. Well, I need another cup of coffee as I definitely haven't had enough, especially now I'm cutting back. So I'm going to go and put the kettle on. Until next time, this is me saying farewell. Farewell.